In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, forgive me for starting with a personal anecdote this morning, but I think it'll be helpful. See, if you spend enough time around me, you'll eventually discover that I love the Stargate franchise. Well, not the first movie with Kurt Russell, really, but everything after that. Um, SG-1 is actually easily my favorite series. It's got techno babble, it's got aliens, it's got interstellar space travel, and to top it off, it's managed to blend all that in with a host of all this ancient Earth stuff. You've got the Egyptian pantheon, the Greek pantheon, you even have King Arthur and Merlin. And so over ten years, the story grows in scope, and new and unexpected, char- unexpected characters emerge. But despite the changes, there's this one particular element that really ties the whole thing together. It's always beneath the surface, and it's always drawing you back to the characters and their ongoing struggle. For me, it's the music. For instance, uh, two characters named Daniel Jackson and Jack O'Neill They start the series with some serious personality conflicts. But there's this moment when Jack is held and tortured for a long time, and there's no hope that only Daniel was there. And though it appeared he could only watch as Jack was tortured mercilessly over and over again, Daniel never left his side. He never stopped reminding him that help was on the way and that he was somehow at work behind the scenes working for Jack's rescue. In that difficult moment of simply being present and assuring Jack that help was on the way, this very simple piano tune is introduced. It's actually just six notes, two bars. However, when against all hope, rescue came, those two bars, those six simple notes, they took on a whole new depth. And over ten years of TV, whenever things seemed dire for one of these two characters, those two bars would emerge. And as the new trials in the story were unfolding, those who had heard those two bars before knew that this was going to be okay. They weren't alone, and rescue was coming. So today, as we turn to our gospel reading, let us make sure that we have our ears on right. So I just want us to get our lenses, our antennas calibrated to this. First, let's remember that Christ himself said, all the law and the prophets spoke about him. From Genesis through the story of Israel, God was orchestrating the rescue and renewal of his creation. And we have the score for God's masterpiece. I'm talking about our Bibles, right? So all the themes and the variations of Scripture find their fullness in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's awesome, isn't it? It's good news for us. You see... In Christ, God has united himself to humanity. And for those of us who are in Christ, the things Jesus has done for us becomes the pattern. That pattern continues to shape our lives into his image. This is why the church has always had this liturgical impulse. It's why we have seasons like Epiphany and Lent. You could say we have a Jesus-shaped calendar because, to quote Ephesians 5, God wants us Not to walk as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. 
something I'm trying to reinforce at King of Kings, for instance, is that just like all our valuable resources, our hearts, our minds, our marriages, our children, our gifts and our talents, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, also claims our time, our calendars. So today is the first Sunday of Lent. And we have begun to journey with Christ out into the wilderness. At the same time, remember, He's working on us. So this is a moment in the story of salvation where God the Spirit moves God the Son out into the wilderness for an ultimate purpose. And so in this episode, there's these two bars of music, two parts of one idea that have been woven into the story of God since the beginning. Before Matthew chapter 1, even before Exodus, in fact, it began all the way back in Genesis. So the two-part idea that I want us to focus on today, as we follow Christ and as we're focusing on repentance and facing our temptations, let's listen for this. First, God brings new life out of the wilderness. God brings new life out of the wilderness. And second, this new life is tempered by the Word of God. It's strengthened. It's reinforced. It's tempered by the Word of God. So if you have your service book, let's go ahead and turn right there to Matthew. We're going to start in 4, verse 1. We actually find ourselves in the middle of this first theme, God bringing new life out of the wilderness. You see, we hear, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But why does Matthew say, Then Jesus? You see, this is actually the part of a series of actions that began two verses earlier. So beginning in Matthew 3.16, it reads, and I know you don't have it, I'm going to read it for you. And then Jesus was baptized, and immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, there's a progression here. Christ is coming out of the water. The Spirit rests on Him. The Father speaks. And then Jesus moves out into the wilderness scene. It's sort of like three notes forming this one bar of music, right? And this tune, this part of the theme, didn't begin here. Most of us are probably quick to recognize that this is recalling Deuteronomy 8.2. If you had a study Bible and you looked at it, there's usually a little hyperlink that says Deuteronomy 8.2. That's where God says Israel was tested in the wilderness to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. But it goes back even further. This one sequence running into Matthew 4, verse 1, is actually grabbing a hold of Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And it's giving them to us in pop-up book form. And I love pop-up books. So what happens in these first three chapters of Genesis? Well, there's waters. The Spirit hovers above. God speaks. He draws up the land from which... What does he form? He forms man, Adam. 
And the state of that land was what? It was wilderness. Scrubby is the word. Genesis 2.5 says, There was no bush of the field or small plant of the field that had yet sprung up, because man was not there yet. God continues his work. He creates man. He places him in the garden. And then the tempter comes. And he raises this simple question. And what did Adam do? He chose the wrong kind of food. So God, just to recap, God brought up man out of the primordial waters into the wilderness. God placed man in the garden without first requiring that he earn or prove himself But he was tested and he chose the wrong food. So coming back, go ahead and glance down at Matthew 4, verse 3. Christ has passed through the water, went back out into the wilderness. The devil shows up and is back to one of his same old tricks. And he raises this simple question. But notice the outcome's a lot different than the first time around. It says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, where we struck out, the Lord Jesus Christ just tees off on the enemy. Jesus says man was truly hungry. And as God, he had all the power to make whatever he wanted at any time. But Jesus speaks the word of God. And where the first man failed, the second Adam did not. Christ knew what food to choose. And it was food in its truest form. The Word of God. So think on that for a minute. Consider the beauty of God's plan as it begins to take shape. It should be apparent at this moment that God's plan of salvation wasn't, was written in eternity past. Even the pattern of the fall serves God's story of salvation. Have you thought about that? He brought the pattern of the fall here into the wilderness and he shows us salvation. Christ has left paradise. He went back through the waters into the wilderness to create new life and ensure it has a place in the garden once again. So in the face of temptation, Christ, though he isn't just beginning the renewal of humanity, he reveals that he's elevating it. He's elevating what it means to be image bearers, even beyond our wildest expectations. Here's what I mean by this. If we went just off Genesis, we might equate being created in God's image with intellect, morality, maybe creative potential. But because Christ has entered humanity's story and elevated every part of it, and especially since he went out into the wilderness, we begin to realize we don't just bear God's ability to make decisions or be creative. Christians, new creation people, are carrying the presence of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, His loving, self-denying reign. We carry that out into the world where wilderness is still there. And we see this because Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, He connects it to himself in Matthew 4, verse 4. And it also points ahead to his sacrifice and ongoing work in us, his church. So let's read Deuteronomy 8, 3, connect it to 4, verse 4, and look ahead. 
And God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So in Christ, God brings this new life out of the wilderness. This is a new people, and everything about them is elevated, right? Even their food. Notice God gave the old covenant people a miraculous sign by which they knew they could trust God. He gave them manna. God has taken the old type and shadow and has given His people the true bread from heaven. The church, with the Spirit of God in her midst, is now sustained by Christ in word and sacrament. We hear God's true speech in His complete and Christ-shaped word. And we are fed by His real presence in bread and wine. In other words, we have a God that is offering the world a new and better manna, Christ Himself. As Jesus said in John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, we live in, a, in the world and yet seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father. We are outposts of the kingdom. We've probably heard that phrase before. And God has given us, the church, these gifts of word and sacrament. And they're real. They're perpetual. They're infinite in power, unending in their endurance. And through these, when we come in faith and repentance, we're growing, we're growing daily into this new life. And as we grow, we're carrying that unfading light of Christ that we focused on in Epiphany out into the wilderness that we see in Lent. All of this, you could say, is baked in to the fabric of the gospel. And it even shines through right here in Matthew 4.4. 4. This reality is here in all of us, even from the beginning of our new life in Christ. From the moment we were formed in the wilderness. But let's talk about the second part of this theme. Growing in that new life. Or to borrow a verse that Father Kalen loves to use, fan into flame the gift that was given to you. So this new life that is being poured into us, is new life tempered by the Word of God. We would flounder without the Word of God tempering us. So the righteousness of Christ, His victory in the wilderness, ultimately, the cross, is what we are called to take on, to clothe ourselves in. Nothing else should come first in our life. The Word of God given to us in the gifts of God, by the grace of God, that's the chief means by which we are being shaped. So remember that today. I pray you would draw close to that this season of Lent. The Word of God. Because during this Lenten journey and the rest of our lives, we're going to be tempted to hang on to people, to things, to agendas that God actually wants us to give up. But if we hold on to those things, it's going to come at the expense of something better. Just remember that. So God asks us to make sacrifices because He knows what's best for us. 
See, the freer we are of our own harmful stuff, the freer the reign of Christ in our lives and in the world around us. As Paul said in Romans 5.17 today, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So the abundance of grace and that free gift of life that reigns in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. The Spirit wants to blast that through us to the world today and through this season. And the world, when the world sees that in you, they'll know that you are new life, tempered by the Word of God. That's real. And in a world where reality is always in question, they're going to want that. Our colleague for today says, Come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Not us mighty to save. You, God. Was it God's agenda, for instance, to kick the ministry of the Messiah off in Hollywood fashion? Like with a stunt off the top of the temple. Like the devil was, uh, he was, he was promoting in Matthew 4, verse 5 through 7. No, that wasn't how God was going to do it. And that's probably good for some of us who are prone to going a little over the top. To remember, that's just not God's way of doing things. Well, how about this? Is God one who makes compromises with the devil to accomplish his goals? When we read in Matthew 4, verses 7 through 10, where the devil offers Christ the kingdoms of the world in exchange for his worship, doesn't that sound silly to us? We're like, come on. Jesus ain't going to do that. That's silly. But on a small level, aren't we guilty of letting the spiritual end justify the worldly means? What about in our politics, our careers, our parenting? What about our motives in actually giving things up for Lent? And I don't want to cause scruples here. But know that there's always this looming temptation to also forget that we serve Christ, who is our master, even in the mundane things. So we're called always to fulfill the will of Christ, just as Christ always fulfills the will of the Father. This is a lifestyle that involves slow, steady faithfulness to God and our neighbor. I pray we'll encounter that and we'll embody that this season of Lent. And we'll find that that's the new life that is tempered by the Word of God. And as we are tempered, I pray that we'll continue to see God bringing new life to others in the wilderness. Amen.